0: And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer, here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. John Vance. He is former senior pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Rock Tavern, New York. He's a board member here at Redeemer, and also one of our trusted advisors. Pastor Vance, thank you for joining us today. Oh, I'm happy, happy to do so. And, um... We would have been at the studio together today, but I've got a nasty cold that's gone down in my chest, so I didn't want to risk giving you my cold. You know, there's some things we like to share, but not those.
1: Yeah, I believe in communion, but not that kind.
0: (laughs) Um, You mentioned to me that you've been reading a book that came out. It's called The Benedict Option, A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation. So let's talk a little bit about that book today. And I believe that the Colson Center has mentioned this book on the air a number of times. So it's uh, apparently a very good read. I just ordered myself a copy, but it hasn't come in yet. And so I'm working a little bit in the blind here. But I do have part of it up on the screen in front of me uh, using a Kindle Cloud Reader, they call Mm -hmm. it. (laughs) So uh, maybe you can get us started and... um, Talk about um, what is this book all about?
1: Well, first of all, it is a it is actually a minor sensation, maybe a major sensation. Uh, it has hit the Christian community uh, with a bang, no no question about it. It's been written up in the New York Times. It, he's been on C-SPAN. The author. Uh, it's it's uh, being talked about in all evangelical circles. Probably some Catholic circles as well and I know uh Eastern Orthodox circles so uh this is a major uh, work that will be read far and wide and it'll be consequential. The author uh is a magazine editor. Uh his last name uh I hope I'm pronouncing it properly, but he is, his first name is Rod and his last name is Dreer. And uh he grew up in uh, Louisiana, he obviously in the Washington, New York area for some time and cultivated a lot of friends and uh, literary friends in high places and thinkers. But he moved back to Louisiana on the death of his sister and wanted to be back in that community. He continues to write. He has an interesting religious history. He, I think, started off, grew up in a Methodist family, but became a non-believer and had a sudden conversion pretty much to Catholicism by visiting a cathedral in Europe and was overwhelmed by the power and beauty of uh, the building. I don't know which cathedral it was. I think it was one at, one in France. Mm-hmm. And uh, during the pre-scandals in the Roman Catholic Church, he actually got very disillusioned and converted to Eastern Orthodoxy. So that mm. is where he's coming from religiously. Uh, and just give you a little more background, he seems to be extremely earnest. Uh, he is questing for a deep spiritual walk with the Lord, there is no question about that. And this book reflects uh, those deep feelings and deep quest.
0: Hmm. So he really has experienced all three branches of Christianity, starting off Protestant and Methodism, going to Roman Catholic, then to Eastern Orthodoxy. And uh, we might say that all three branches are Trinitarian.
1: All Trinitarian, all uh, faith of the creed, the great creeds of the early church, and uh, he is extremely familiar with evangelicalism, and lots of his contacts and fellowship seems to be with evangelicals Mm -hmm. uh, of different stripes, broadly evangelical, even the Reformed tradition.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So, um, what is this book about? We've talked a little bit about Rod Dreher and his background. Um, What is he getting at in the book?
1: Well, first of all, you have to understand that uh, he is extracting, if you will, uh, or abstracting even, uh, many of the principles that you would find in a monastery, uh, and projecting that on the larger Christian community and using that as a model in some respects, to follow. Uh, His model, of course, is Benedict of Nursia. He was a uh, 5th century monk and the father of Western monasticism, and those who've read anything about monastic history know that his rule for the faith is very simple, but the basic rules for living within the monastery uh, have been disseminated far and wide in almost all monastic traditions, base their own rules on that original rule of Benedict. The, the uh, origins of monasticism developed in the Egyptian desert in the uh, 4th century. Cassian is the father of monasticism, a man by the name of Cassian. And uh, so that tradition is playing an important role in forming uh, writing about uh, present-day culture and its problems and how to, if you will, protect yourself from the extreme secular ungodly environment that we find ourselves in in the Western
0: world. Yeah, so in other words, he's not necessarily saying go become a monk in a monastery, but using these principles to apply in our lives and kind of protect ourselves from the terrible onslaught that we see of of paganism and secularism.
1: Yes. Yes. Now, he's not opposed for someone living the monastic life. He thinks an important part Mm -hmm. of the Christian tradition because it is a life of prayer and devotion, and they perform, if you will, uh, intercessory uh, uh, experience for the entire Christian community. that can't give itself up to that. Uh, And also, uh, the learning that they maintain and the discipline, and he thinks that that has its own place, But on the other hand, he believes that, yes, those principles can, if I can use a Latin phrase, mutatis mutandis, means switching and adapting it to our environment, Mm -hmm. Uh, it can help the evangelical community a great deal in how to approach political life and living in America today.
0: Yes. In his book, he mentions some problems that he wants to address that he sees he's going to suggest some examples, as possible solutions, I guess. Um, what are some of the problems that that he is addressing?
1: Well, it's extreme secularism in the West. Uh, as you well know, uh, things have run amok here in the last uh, 40, 50 years, uh, particularly in the area of sexuality. Uh, it seems to have loosened uh, the bonds and moorings of many people and also coupled with the technology that we constantly are barraged with and the news and everything. Uh, We are on our cell phones all the time. We're on our computers. We're watching television. He believes that this activity in itself is extremely alienating and that these things have to be dealt with. So as I view it, it, it boils down to these practices, the way we are living our lives in a technological age and are not being socialized properly, and also in our sexuality, it's it's run amok, and it's also alienating us from all that's good and true and holy. Mm-hmm. So he sees that as the immediate problem, but he actually sketches a kind of fall or decline, uh, not from... Let's say the Civil War in America or uh, post Civil War, or not from even uh, the Thirty Years' War in Europe. But he goes all the way back to the 14th century and he sees a decline starting after Thomas Aquinas when William of Ockham developed an alternative philosophical understanding uh, called nominalism. And he believes that this was a an alienation from realism that we're not living in the real world in a proper way. Uh, I personally think that is a stretch, uh, but he also sees, if I could mention a couple of his problems,
0: uh-huh.
1: even the the Renaissance and the Reformation to some extent. Though he extols many virtues of the Reformation as being somewhat alienating and tending towards secularization. So uh, he, he's to me he's he's. Um, if we're talking about a 700-year decline, I want to know when was there such thing as an ideal Christian civilization? What about oh, sure. the centuries in the high Middle Ages? Uh, I think he is wrong in that analysis, but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that his analysis about American culture presently is not right, and it doesn't mean that some of his prescriptions are
0: not right. Right. I, I was reading one small quote here. Um, bringing it up to the current time, and he says, post-Obergefell, Christians who hold to the biblical teaching about sex and marriage have the same status in culture and increasingly in law as racists. And, and I felt that. I mean, um, you know, it, it, that term is used so loosely nowadays um, by progressive thinking people, intellectuals even, and um, in, I find that sad that that term is thrown out so loosely.
1: Oh, yes. Uh, The name-calling works, by the way. Uh, This pursuit of an idealistic form of justice in our society, of everyone being equal and no one being left behind, um, of the history of America being continually thrown in our face, our worst side of it, uh, which racism and... Jim Crow laws were, of course, slavery, The Jim Crow laws is a blot, a stain on this uh, society of ours. Sure. No one currently alive has ever owned a slave and doesn't know anyone who ever did. <laughs> um, and then we have the, the uh, sexual revolution, which started in a big way in the 50s with the uh, beat generation, and then in mm-hmm. the 60s uh, with... Uh, the Flower Children. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I lived through both of those, so I kind of understand them and saw it firsthand. That's I didn't right. experience it firsthand. I wasn't that crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, started there, but that was just in practice. But the recent court ruling on same-sex marriage is kind of a watershed. Mm. And the reason it's a watershed is that there is really no stopping place uh, we will go to plural marriages. Uh, it's conceivable people will even marry their dogs and cats and everything else. Who knows what's going to happen? I, I right. believe the floodgates are open. I mean, that people might laugh at hear this, but I would not uh, say that there is a barrier to almost stop till you go to the very bottom yeah. in this area.
0: So that's contrasted with a Christian home with covenant children, parents wanting to raise their children after the precepts of God and have them be productive human beings who love God, who are able to uh, produce, give to society, and uh, worship Him uh, in the church and partake of the sacraments and all of that. And so there is a real concern among parents. How do I direct my children When the floodgates are open and all of their input, particularly if they're in a government school, is to bring them down, bring them down and continually uh, brainwash them. How do we protect the next generation?
1: Well, that's his his prescription, and I think this is the strength of the work. Uh, His prescriptions, it seems to me, are reasonable and biblical. Uh, for instance, uh, some of the rules that you find in the monastery pertaining to work and prayer and those kinds of things, he believes, needs to be put into practice in our homes, our family lives, which no doubt is true. Every evangelical yeah. listening to me today would subscribe to that. Uh, we need to be a much more disciplined society and much more disciplined people. That's part of the problem. There's a breakdown in that area. hmm Uh, But it's also an estrangement from beauty. Uh, There's so much ugliness in our society that it is is alienating from God. Uh, And the same goes for uh, truth, of course. Truth is very uh, wishy-washy. Relativism has taken over. And so goodness is another thing that's not prized, it seems like. Uh, the truth, beauty, and goodness uh, are, are at stake. And so how do we protect ourselves from these so that we can have an experience with God and, and protect ourselves so that we can worship the Lord uh, in the beauty of holiness? And so he starts with the family, and he says that the family needs to adopt some of these things. He even recommends that you take away things from your children such as uh, don't let them be on the computer all the time. There's so much that can corrupt them, or their cell phones, or the television even. So he believes that there has to be an imposed discipline upon those activities. He also believes that you have to protect your children through forming, if you will, Christian communities, whether they be in the church or in a location, uh, so that you can have environmental support, if you will, for your children so that they will look for the right thing, but not the wrong thing. There needs to be a reinforcement, in other words, for the family.
0: Yeah. He makes a kind of a application here, analogy. There was a, a flood in the Baton Rouge area, and apparently it really took people by surprise. And families were basically shell-shocked. Uh, it, it came so fast, they had to leave everything behind, um, the evacuees were dazed, he says, and he would hear the same story over and over. We've lost everything. We never expected this. It has never flooded where we live. We were not prepared. And so that's a, that's a sentiment, I think, that carries into the whole um, moral and social concerns that he has of protecting future societies from this, from this terrible onslaught of paganism.
1: Yes, he, he, he certainly believes that the government is not going to be able to do it. No. Neither is politics. He, right. while he believes that it's important for people to be engaged in politics, Christians. But he believes that the cultural tide is against being effective in that area. It's right. just a we're being swept away, if you will, by another kind of flood of, uh, of uh, paganism. And so... Uh, And the technology is a big deal for him because it, it too, takes us away from what is good and holy and true in forming good social relationships. And I know from teaching in college that these students are hooked to their phones. Oh, yeah. And uh, they would rather talk on the phone and text than talk to each other.
0: Oh, I've seen it time and again. You go into a diner, even, and particularly in the younger generation, they sit across from each other with their food. And they're texting. They're they're in another world, not engaging with the person right in front of them. That's
1: true. I've seen people texting in church.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Looking at their iPhone and texting. So they ought to be turned off and uh, set aside. I, I leave yeah. my cell phone in the car when I go into church. I just don't take the chance of That's a good idea. wanting to come on or even the temptation to look at it. Yeah. Uh, and I spend a lot of time... Well, I'm preaching now for a small church and helping it out, but I've spent some time in the pew since I retired from Westminster, and I've observed people in a way that I hadn't seen them before. And I've seen people doing all kinds of things. While uh, And and that has to do with the fact that that our churches don't engage people. They're more spectators than participants. And this is where liturgy comes in. And he believes that we ought to learn the ancient liturgy. I do too. We have to learn to confess our faith together and confess our sins together. Uh, we have to understand that we are there uh, in service of God. But these, uh, he is very much opposed to these contemporary church mm-hmm. uh, notions where you can take your cup of coffee into the service and stand there and sing some gospel songs and then hear the preacher preach. Uh, he is for a full fledged liturgical worship experience where you go into church, uh, and all of us are entering into the presence of God to worship Him and the beauty of holiness, and we uh, confess our faith to Him, we listen to His Word, Uh, we receive the Lord's Supper, and He places great stock, and I think rightly so, on uh, the Lord's Supper being served. It's a service of word and sacrament. Right, and this I think he is correct.
0: Yeah, yeah. Christ meets us in a mysterious way you know, in the supper, and just like Calvin said, he lifts us up to the heavenlies where we partake in a spiritual way of his body and blood. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful.
1: That's that's true. the The uh, sursum corda, lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord, and Calvin talks about in a in a not a magical way, but in a mystical way, we are lifted up to be in the heavenlies with our Lord and to uh, feast upon him by faith and to receive his body and blood uh by faith.
0: And some people might might say, well, you know, we gotta relate to the young people. And yet he's got a he's got a little paragraph here where he talks about he says, Don't be fooled by the large number of churches you see today. He goes on, he says, unprecedented numbers of young adult Americans say they have no religious affiliation at all. According to the Pew Research Center, one in three 18 to 29-year-olds have put religion aside if they ever picked it up in the first place. That's
1: true. Uh, He is opposed to the therapeutic society, what I mean by that, the health professions and the self-help books, and you go and listen to a sermon in church in an area where you're going to be entertained more than worship, but then you hear a sermon about how you can get ahead and make a success out of your life, uh, this is incidental. We are first to seek the kingdom of God, and then these things will be added right. to us. Right. So we are to worship God. That is our uh, reason there, and it does change your orientation for the rest of life. mm so that is that is the important thing that I take away from the book. Uh, these uh, seeker-friendly churches are a total fad.
0: hmm That they are.
1: Uh, they will not last because they cannot support families and educational institutions, and finally the individual who, on the final day, will be judged before a holy God. Yeah. So, uh, and they certainly won't protect your children, and the younger generation— is, is uh, not picking up the faith. No. And here is a crucial point for him. This faith must be tradition from generation to generation. Uh, and you have to create that in your family, in your church, and in your uh, Christian educational institutions and things like that. If you don't, uh, secularism will just, like a roaring lion, eat your children up.
0: You know, in our day, it's almost like you're afraid to mention the word tradition, um, you know, particularly among us who are Protestants, who proclaim the historic Christian faith and look back to the Reformation, if we mention tradition, sometimes it's misinterpreted or, or it's bad-mouthed, but, but we all have traditions, and it's a very positive thing. It doesn't have to be made into a negative thing.
1: Well, I grew up in a church that did not even have a bull's in the worship service, and they would not <laughs> do any ritual. Yeah. And I noticed that the church fell into a ritualism that they didn't even recognize. They did the same thing over and over right. every Lord's Day. But the rituals, unfortunately, were not very profound. Yes. And they were skin deep. And so what happened was that that church today, which was a 1,000 members when I was a child, is down to under 100. My sister was telling me she visited recently. Yeah. Uh and where my father labored so long, and my mother, my father, was the best Christian I ever met, mm. frankly, in many ways, most impactful on me. Amen. But uh, we were sustained in the family. He had family devotions. We never ate a meal without a prayer. We never mm. <laughs> went mm. to bed without a reading the Bible. Uh, we would sing psalms and hymns in the car when we would travel. So he had those in his own life, even though in the church they didn't have it.
0: You know, uh, I see uh, one more sentence here he shares. He says, if the demographic trends continue, our churches will soon be empty. And that may be a slight overstatement, but I'm afraid it has a lot of truth to it. In the two minutes remaining now, let's um, look forward and positive suggestions for families.
1: Well, first of all, I'm not quite as, as pessimistic in one way, as uh, uh, the Benedict option mm-hmm. seems to present it. Now, I don't think he, that uh, the author is either. Mm-hmm. But you can get an impression that we're in terrible times and there's not much reason for hope. He doesn't really believe that, and neither do I. Right. So let me say that. There are lots of positive reasons of hope. And I believe what he's trying to do is, is to develop communities of hope uh, by sticking together... And writing this out, because history has a way of changing in the future until the Lord comes. And how do we protect our children, and how do we encourage them, and how do we encourage them back to faith? We have to experience a more profound faith than yeah. just this shallowness, uh, Sunday-only experience. It has to be an everyday thing for us and for our children. And uh, we have to exercise some discipline in our lives. We we are a very pampered people. Hmm we've we've grown very comfortable and he suggests and I don't think it's a bad idea as long as it's optional that we ought to fast once in a while mhm just to train our bodies not to be so used to comfort yeah um and uh, he suggests uh wednesday and friday for his tradition uh but certainly we could use a little fasting yeah
0: oh absolutely
1: um and things like that, and discipline in Bible reading, uh, devotions, things like that will immensely help your children. They've got to see it in you, though. One of the things that's turning our children away more than anything else is divorce. Yeah. And breakup of families and marriages. It's a terrible witness for Christians uh, to to simply have the same lifestyle and same decision-making as the world.
0: Yeah. Now I see that we've run out of time Today we've been talking with Dr. John Vance Former senior pastor Westminster Presbyterian Church In Rock Tavern A board member here at Redeemer uh, One of our very trusted advisors And Dr. Vance Thank you so much for Taking the time today and reviewing this book Its title is The Benedict Option A Strategy for Christians In a Post-Christian Nation By Rod Dreher Thank you for joining us
1: Thank you very much. You're welcome.
0: And dear listener, please join us next time for another edition of A Plain Answer.